Hello and welcome to the 20th episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Monday the 26th of August 2019 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This week we continue with Chapter 7, the Workers' Government Slogan, and deal with the concepts of the United Front and the Workers' Government. Last week I attended the CPGB Communist University in Goldsmiths, London, and got to record a long interview with the man himself, Mike McNair, which will be released in the coming few weeks. This week I have the new Patreon, Andre Parashiv, and Brent Beaumont, who upped his pledge to thank. If you'd like to help out, you too can become a member of the Patreon gang gang for as little as $5 a month, which works out at $1 an episode. Patrons get special bonus episodes, the right to vote on the Reading Group series selection, and other cool stuff too. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel. Make sure to like, subscribe and share. You can also join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, to the discussion. We have a very full house with us here today. We got all the way making a, a short stop here today. We got all the way from you uh, drinking at nine o'clock in the morning. We got Derek. How's it going? Pretty good. Non-alcoholic, of course. Now, moving on to the East Coast, we have Lexi. Lexi in upstate New York. How are you doing? Downstate New York. Middle state New York. That's right. It's downstate New York. Upstate New York is where the bears are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in the gay clubs that's right now that's right uh, uh, who do we have Puya. i don't know where the hell Puya. Puya is coming from philly am i right Puya? no uh detroit oh close to detroit, detroit. yeah God, like 30 God. minutes that's it it's yeah. all the rest built to me. <laughs> Hello, Tom. So are, you living, are you living in like one of those rotting wooden houses and like uh, have, like you know prostitutes you know yeah <laughs> No, no, I live in like a uh, like a crappy apartment. Well, it's not as bad as those rotten houses, though. Uh, that's where I'd be living. So no one here lives in a commie squat like in the young ones. Have I lived in one? Goals. My mate lived in one in Dublin for a while. It was an anarchist squat, though. Let's let's get it straight. Um, <laughs> I mean, let's be real. If you're if you're a sex worker, not a grad student, you might be able to afford a better place. Am I right? Hey. Yeah. Oh yes. <laughs> you know, I need. That's what I need to do. I need to become a sex worker. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> I didn't say that. It's yeah. uh, it's not as great as you think, though. I'm just gonna let you know right now. Yeah. <laughs> not that I would probably. know anything about that. I'm just, you know, uh, I know yeah. people. <clears throat> we we all know people. I don't think Puya, you'd earn very much. Wow. Wow. Damn, Tom. I would let you know think... that I would that I would rake in millions. I'd, I'd be. Yeah. I'd, I'd be the fat. I'd be a fat cat for sure. I'd have a top hat on a monocle. <laughs> oh my god, Tom! I, I don't think I don't think you know about the sapiosexual market. You know, I, I'm all I'm just saying is that like unless there's some weird fetish I haven't heard of, Puya, you're you're not going to do well. That's all I'm saying. So, so wait, 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 wait. It's called Marxism, Tom. <laughs> so 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 are are we doing sapiosexual Marxist cam work right now? <laughs> you know, basically all business models converge to cam girl, if you haven't noticed. Everything is intellectual property rentier, and a lot of that is live. So I think 
there's a good case to be made for the, the cam girl model of the 21st so, century economy. So left podcasts are really the result of porn. So. That's just, it's, it's a good historical materialist explanation. <laughs> well, I think this can move our live streams to uh, Chatterbait. Tom, yeah. what do you think? Well, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> Gotta start uploading these to Pornhub, Tom. Uh, I, I'm turning on my camera and getting my kit off. Fuck, we might as well start right here, right now. There goes goes the two listeners. Yeah, right. Yeah, disgusting British daddy dominates Trotskyus. I'm not fucking British. Fuck you. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about McNair. Tom. All right, goddammit. Tom takes off his kilt. Uh, Who wants to touch me, Sparren? Who wants to touch me, Sparren? That's some kind of Irish revolutionary slogan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's not my sparring. <laughs> um, well, okay. okay. Let's see if we can actually start some uh, Marxism here. All right. Well, you know, sex work, it is a, it's a, it's a service. So it is productive labor. Damn right. Now, here we go. Last week, we finished doing the party state, the concept of the new political regime after a revolution being different and uh, being able to uh, basically not allow certain undesirable types of political action like royalists or capitalists. So this idea of a one-party state with factions, like today we have in in England, we have the Tory, and then we've got the inverted commas, Tory left, the Labour Party, as McNair put it. So um, now we're moving on to this idea of the United Front and the workers' government. Okay. Who wants to take maybe the first paragraph here to get us going? Because I can't remember a goddamn thing of what I did when read it one week ago. Derek. The Comintern's United Front turn in 1921-22, recognizing the reality that there was more than one party of the working class, although the communists hoped to displace the socialists as the main party. In this context, all power to the Soviets could not express the working class need for an alternative central coordinating authority. But neither could all power to the Communist Party. The fourth Comintern Congress in 1922 adopted as thesis 11 of its thesis on tactics the slogan of the workers' governments are the workers' and peasants' governments. The thesis is relatively short, but quite complex. It begins with the proposition that the slogan can be used as a general agitational slogan in the sense that the workers' government is clearly intended to be merely a more comprehensible way of expressing the idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat. In some countries, however, the position of bourgeois society is particularly unstable and where the balance of forces between the workers' parties and the bourgeoisie places the question of government on the order of the day as a practical problem requiring immediate solution. In these countries, the workers' government slogan inevitably follows from the entire United Front tactic. The socialists are advocating and forming coalitions with the bourgeoisie, whether open or disguised. The communists counterpose to this a united front involving all workers and a coalition of all workers' parties around economic and political issues, which will fight and finally overthrow bourgeois power. The paragraph continues. The following a united struggle of all workers against the bourgeoisie, the entire state apparatus must pass to the hands of the workers' government, so strengthening the position of power held by the working class. The statement is extremely unclear. At at minimum, it it could mean that all government ministries must be held by members of the workers' coalition. More probably, there would be a significant purge of senior of senior civil service, army tops, and judiciary 
to give workers coalitions control. At the furthest extreme, the whole state apparatus, down to the office clerks and soldiers, should be sacked and replaced by appointees of a working coalition. Do you want to stop it there, Derek? And uh, let's have a chat. What do people think of this so far? So he's setting up here the idea that you know this idea of the workers' government is not particularly clear. One thing that stuck out to me is um, oh, this is Sophie, by the way. I wasn't introduced. Just wanted oh, to sorry. say that. Sorry. Just saying. Whoa. Um, whoa. <laughs> Hold on a second. Coming from Phoenix, Arizona. Oh, excuse me. Coming from um, somewhere in Arizona. Tom's just going to chop that part out. Coming from Arizona. This is Sophie Which, from Trans Trans Revolution. Hey. So, anyway. Um, very very sorry, pride. Sophie. I can't believe I forgot to introduce her. I thought we, we just spent so long ripping on no. other stuff i thought i'd done yeah. everybody sorry about that we got distracted by sex work which is like totally fair actually so it's okay, mm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the thing that like kind of jumped out at me was this quote here where it says um something to the effect that instead of smashing the state the workers coalition uh seizes state power which is so funny because the thing that like got me out of anarchism and into marxism was actually uh lenin's state and revolution and where it's pretty explicitly said that you need to smash the state so we see already from like 1917 to like what is this 2021 shit gets like super watered down and it, it you know obviously this chapter goes through like part of the reasons why that happens but <laughs> that was the first thing that like jumped out at me and i always wondered how tanks tankies could get you know where they get to from this idea of smashing the state and the like the very uh democratic tendencies within state and revolution and this is how um it is interesting um to me how th how this accidentally comes out of trying to do coalitionary government works without a part with like with a party issue and particularly since we know like in 1921 by the end of the year that they're going to suppress all the other party coalitions except except in areas where they're not in power and by 19 i think it's like 1929 they're calling for like the ban on factions to extend even in places where they aren't in power this this gets really this actually does kind of flow from some compromises they've had to kind of form the united front and i'll be honest with you this, this chapter actually has made me rethink my commitment to the united front as the you know sole answer to all these problems why is that well, because it seems like the the gener like degenerations and what we mean by the United Front keep on generating these problems. Like we have to water everything down to statements where, oh, the, well, it, we could mean smash the state, we could mean sack everybody and replacement workers, or we could mean just like kind of have our parties control the major ministries of the state, maybe. <laughs> And, and that is watered down to keep all the members of the coalition of uh, in the United Front within that front. That's why it's written that way. That's why it's so mm. vague. Yeah, there's an inevitable like vagary about when you're trying to like install a new social order. And keyword there is install. All of this literature makes not as much sense if you sort of imagine that there's like a, I'll put it this way. If you take this stuff at face value. It's almost like, all right, now that the workers threw a tantrum, put us in power, and now we have to implement what they wanted, as opposed to sort of facilitating what the workers were doing. And I know it's a boilerplate autonomist point. It's a serious one, but it doesn't just come out of like, yeah. it's not just the socialists that have this issue. My, my favorite thing is like, no. read the U.S. Constitution. 
it's full of it is full of this kind of vagary to keep different groups you know you're not talking about social like social classes exactly or that you kind of are um to keep different groups in check with each other and so you end up with weird like very weird and almost meaningless clauses that can be interpreted in radically different directions like the ninth and tenth amendments for example are, yeah, yeah. Are, you know are what do they say all power to the people and all power to the states, basically. All power not enumulated in the federal constitution is um, applies to the states. And then that's basically contradicted, but not but not negated by the 13th and 14th Amendments, which are the ab- abolition of slavery and, uh, and the application of the Bill of Rights to all U.S. citizens, regardless, at all levels, not just um, the federal government, which prior to the Civil War... People don't tend to know this. The, the 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 Bill of Rights was only stopped the feds from doing stuff, but the state could do what it wanted because the Tenth mm-hmm. Amendment actually gave the states those powers. And those, yeah, there's and like there's the uh, yeah. slaughterhouse cases where the basically the judiciary like more or less expropriated the Bill of Rights from actually applying federally. Like, yeah, yeah, it's a pretty dismal history, and it's I guess you should sort of expect that sort of vagary and put and push and pull, and you know between equal right force decides in bourgeois law. But the problem doesn't actually get overcome just because you slap a red flag on it. Or if there's even a real like workers revolution that wants to, you know, engage with it. Because in some ways this is emerging out of almost like, like systems logic that it doesn't, it doesn't have to do with content. Like you could have mathematically, now I'm going to sound like you dirty analytics, but maybe you could have mathematically modeled this happening. Mm-hmm. Like no matter yeah. like we, we, in a way that would indicate that this kind of stuff would happen no matter what weirdo group of political people you had together that there's that the vagaries lead to lead to just like can lead to justifications and then yeah. it does it does kind of lead me to this uh, question and then I'll shut up why don't we consider the Stalinist part of the socialist right I do um, I do well it's I mean, the historical reason is because Stalinists appear as part of Leninists, and Leninists are like a center-left sort of deviation. And I, you could you could kind of fairly and like in the the Third International way of understanding things is really flawed, but it associates non-market mechanisms with the left. And so, not only did you have at one point you know Stalin going into third period mode or what have you, then you had him doing. Uh, total force collectivization that stuff read historically as being left even within like the social like within the marxist spectrum even though i mean in retrospect the third period was a moment before the popular front uh forced expropriation was i mean it was off the scale right you know it was like it was basically like a bourgeois like it was almost like a bourgeois functionalist conspiracy taking taking the hold of a of a communist, you know, like or of of communism, like sort of the reason why I don't think you can use only one axis to figure it all out. And I think uh, what's it called when um, he moved away from the NEP into the the entire planned economy with the material balance planning. I think that was also left. I think Trotsky was advocating for, you know, the left opposition was advocating for that uh, previously. You know, I think a lot of them actually 
you know, a lot of Atroticus actually became Solanus after the abandonment of ENEP. But yeah. Anyways. Which, which, which hmm. is interesting. And then there's a lot of people who... I mean, it's, it's interesting to me because the NEP is... I don't know. Like the NEP is where a lot of Trotskyists will talk about the deviations of Stalinism, even though they'll ignore that that was really Lenin. Um, and also that right. the collectivization really was going terribly and people were starving, like is also sort of missed. Like that's not like Lenin didn't do that out of kindness. It was harder, like some, some pre commitment to, to bourgeois theory. It was a literary response to, to imminent food failure. Yeah, I guess maybe to pivot back a little bit is that there's that transmorgification from, you know, the proletarian, you know, the, the, cla- the class interests of the proletariat kind of being put into like a, like a, a body that can, you know, dominate the state or use the state or abolish the state, however you want to frame it, um, in the dictatorship of the proletariat. It would require some kind of scientific read of class interest it would require a kind of thought about institutional design with regard to class interest. Um, you would have to think about people gaming the system and trying to take advantage of it before in, in much the way an analytical would you know, model you know, the likely incentive structures and the kind of actors that you could expect. And yeah, you'd have to do like a lot of probably institutional design to really think about how that would come about. Um, and instead, what we have is a... And this kind of follows from dealing with, you know, what was at one point uh, an electoral situation is that you have to make like some kind of coalitional appeal. And this is always a problem in capitalism, but it's especially a problem in, uh, you know, proto-capitalism, basically, where you don't even have, you know, the massive workers that you would in capitalism, that you have to, you have to, you know, essentially make a broader appeal beyond who people who are narrowly thought of as workers. Um, and I know McNair makes the, the very Marxian autonomist kind of dodge of that, you know, the organized expression of the industrial proletariat isn't the only, they're not the only workers. But yeah, it's hard. Like we, we have a substitution here. We have a substitution of, you know, institutional, it's, it wasn't even supposed to be design. It was supposed to kind of emerge out of the class movement. But let's say we're taking this on the terms that it's given. Like, um, you know, an institutional design uh, towards the class interests of the proletariat versus a sort of, you know, workers and peasants and soldiers uh, government. You know, that's these are sort of different questions. But they all appear together because of you know all, all the all the elect all that electoral energy all that democratic energy being routed into the bolsheviks and i don't know even if even if that even if that's inevitable if if that's inevitable then holy shit that's scary and if it is then you know um we're fucked well i mean yeah. how how do you how do you get to from that kind of situation to, okay, we're actually going to take seriously the class interests of the proletariat and create an institution designed to work. Like I can imagine that as a paper exercise, hard to imagine how that comes about other than, you know, some sub bakuninist uh, mass strike strategy. <laughs> or well, or, or you'd have to take like assemblies a lot more seriously. Right. Right. Which yeah. is back into the response problem. 
I mean, like, this is something I'm thinking about is like, well, well if you, you're kind of saying like, no, like the party has to represent the proletariat, but the proletariat has many parties. We've also already dealt with the fact that McNair is using party in like four different ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and opposing, and I mean, to be fair, he's not, it's not like he's equivocating, like he's, he's positing some versions of the party against other forms of party, but like, mm-hmm. what, what would this even look like in the Russian situation and the world situation at the time? It's hard to know. And, um, with the, you, you see that concession to national bourgeoisies being needed to have national revolutions, like. That's that's in there, and that that's that's not unique to Lenin either. That 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 actually does go back to Marx. Um, it does. So, what do we make it like? What do we make of the fact it does seem like there, like you, this is very hard to game out? And I guess my other caveat is like the thing that you're not mentioning is there's still one of the reasons why they did this was that they needed skill sets to maintain everything. Mm. That, yeah, that's part of the sort of democratic coalition building, even though they're not really democratic after a certain point. But that's why they couldn't, like, it was the same problem that, like, I mean, when they tried to debaffify Iraq, like, mm. they had no one who had the proper education to assume those basic state functions. So a lot of, like, the middle of our functionaries could not be removed. And that was true. They, they so and actually interestingly there's one argument i can't remember who made it this is part of why the terror was so bad is it was actually designed to scare to scare those people into being loyal oh, more than yeah. it was to i mean more you know um that that was actually part of the logic because they couldn't remove them so they had to terrify them right which like, you know what you what you any good Machiavellian will tell you it's better to be feared than loved. But when you're dealing with a, a, a stratum of uh, specialists and you're trying to basically get, you know, uh, lay the foundations for getting rid of their position, the only thing that you can actually, you know, work with is is uh, specialists that are endeared to your project that see a reflection of their o- overall long-term, you know, human interest in it, even if it runs against their direct class interest. You're right, like, which leads to those weird, crazy inefficiencies in the '30s with the technocrats. Anyway, they still fucked mm-hmm. it all up. Like it wasn't like the. So I mean, it didn't even end up being an answer to the skills problem. Is what I'm kind of saying. So yeah, the history of the Soviet Union can't help us adjudicate this, um, but the question remains. You know, how do you grill this right? Um, well, what could we use as a like? This is the the question because the bourgeois um, bourgeois coalitionary politics doesn't work either. No, like it's it's not it a good really model doesn't. for this. It it like it's not a good model for for how you'd even model what to do because like bourgeois class interests were. I mean, th- this is something that's kind of kind of harder to to parse out. But in some ways, bourgeois class interests were more more emergent in their revolutions and proletarian class interests are, which, mm. and I'll tell you what I mean by that. The proletarians created by, you know, like by the existence of a bourgeois class structure, right? But bourgeois, the bourgeois as a class could not solidify itself except politically. And it wasn't really like being hyper oppressed by nobles or whatever. It was just, it had a competing interest and in manifesting literally undid that thing. 
the boot, uh, proletarian class class interest is necessarily more antagonistic than that. Like it's 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 not coming out emerging out of a positive political project. It's actually it's particularly since Marx's goal is not the abolition of of. Uh, it's not just a political project though. Like the bourgeois wasn't just a political project; it was an economic one too. Well, yes and no. I mean, the, the thing is, you can't separate po po um, policy and economy until you, until that's what I mean. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. But they have a they have a distinct advantage because they're a small group who have the means of production. It's much easier to organize a small group than it is to like organize everybody. It's just right. like that's why the mob. That's why the mob are able to exploit everybody. I mean, and that, I mean, the, the bourgeois knew that because the the prior, the other, you know, the the other mode of um, liberal production, which wasn't entirely as bourgeois, was like was liberal absolutism, and that was like we gotta we gotta make everything better for everybody, but we can only do that by having like one person in charge to dictate all of it, so our coalition's super small. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Let's move it. Will we move it on? Oh, I was gonna. All I was gonna say is. Um... We all think about the Kotskian kind of idea of like uh, capitalism. I think it's from Kotsky. Capitalism will build up the working class to the point to where they'll have the skills necessary um, to, uh, you know, be able to get into these positions of power. Because my knee-jerk reaction is that's wrong. But then I think of like, can you do like some kind of um, as part of like a strategy of patience, some like building up of the working class, like through like you know the SPD had like their their schools and all that kind of stuff. Well, I think that's what prefiguration was about in the, yeah. in the sixties. And it, the problem is it's very hard to imagine what a future conditions are going to be in the conditions of the current. And like, that was, you know, and I think you can get yourself into this game like Adorno does where you basically just can't imagine another, like imagining another world becomes literally impossible. Yeah. But like, I, I do think there's something to, and, and maybe it's antiquarian, but the way that there was like a sort of party apparatus and a sort of like rate, you know, raising the new generation and like, there is something that there needs to be an existing institution that could take the place of the state. That's not going to appear out of nowhere. And if it does like the Soviets or, you know, even though I guess there was like a, you know, there was like a 10 year tradition at least of Soviets popping up and those just got like outflanked almost immediately as soon as power was, you know, supposedly transferred to the Soviets. Like, so, so there does have to be some kind of, there does have to be some kind of prefigurative, like power structure, you might say. Mm. And this, like, this, and it's what Sophie's it. kind of, you know, nudging towards not just the sixties, but you know, this like the, the like the, the party culture, culture, right. The party culture of, of the, the SP day, that sort of thing. But the, the, the issue, I mean, the other issue is kind of blatant. It's money. I mean, because the issue is trying to, when you're trying to replicate the functions of an ever increasingly complex and large state, the amount of resources needed to do that gets ever increasingly massive. Like, I can't, like, because a lot of people say, well, if you just have enough people contribute labor power to it, and I'm like, there's, you're not going to run a counter organization off of volunteer labor power. Uh, you you mm. can barely run a counter militia off of volunteer labor power. And a militia only exists to destroy things. So like, or to defend things, they don't build anything really. So like yeah. that, 
the, you get what I'm saying about the why I get pessimistic on the orders when I'm thinking game theoretical or like system mm-hmm. theory. Like this gets really kind of overwhelming real fast. Yes, I guess my my response though is that um, I think you have to keep all these concerns in mind and start really small because I don't. I think it is naive to think a prefigurative kind of formation can like ready-made supplant the state. But I do think that um, you have to have something started at the very least. Mm. And um, I think also like as, you you know, like a a revolution kind of wraps up, you you have more, you have the ability to have more people support this and feed into it. So if you already have some pre-existing structures, however limited and small they are, it's better than having nothing. Um, and, you know, I brought this up in the context of like the issue of like specialization and, and like the, uh, you know, middle bureaucrats that uh, Lenin was a bit too rosy eyed about getting rid of them in, in state and revolution. Um, but even even starting even, even more basic than that, like I've been parts of like uh, groups that did like a collective like mental health group therapy sessions or whatever. Um, There's a project called Diverge and um just other like mutual aid organizations like that i don't i don't not naive enough to think that this can replace you know medicaid and all this kind of stuff but the idea is to supplant the welfare that already exists and ideally get to a point where people can learn skills that or at least start to learn skills that will make uh, the existing state unnecessary it's not going to happen overnight though and i think that's why like it's important to do this in tandem with the strategy of patience Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Like maybe something like Vest Payday and their sort of like party alternative culture might not exist. I don't think, I don't, I probably, I don't think that that's probably what it will look like in the future, but something. It'll be holograms. It'll be holograms (laughs) with transportation belts. Yeah. Transportation belts. (laughs) Okay. All right. So basically the doctor from Voyager. Got it. Okay. Got it. Moving on. Puya. Hit that paragraph there. We've done about seven hours on the first fucking page. Fine. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'd like to comment that, uh, yeah, uh, I think it's a great idea, but I think the prospects are limited if you don't have means of production for, uh, like, setting up, you know, an alternative. Um, okay, so I guess I'll start the next one. Okay, a critical paragraph follows. The most elementary tasks of a worker's government must be to arm the proletariat, disarm the bourgeois counter-revolutionary organizations, bring in control over production, and shift the main burden of taxation onto the property classes, and break with the resistance of a counter-revolutionary bourgeoisie. This is the only statement of substantive tasks or minimum platform of a workers' government in this thesis. Such a government is only possible if it is born out of the struggle of the masses and is supported by the combative workers' organizations formed by the most oppressed sections of the workers at the grassroots level. However, even a workers' government that comes about through the alignment of parliamentary forces, i.e. a government of a purely parliamentary origin, can give rise to the up, to an upsurge of a revolutionary workers' movement. This pair of statements amounts to a non-dialectical contradiction. It is illusory to suppose that both a, a workers' government can only be possible if it is borne out through the mass struggle and supported by mass organizations, i.e. Soviets, and b, that a parliamentary coalition, uh, parliamentary coalition agreement can cause an upsurge of the mass movement, 
The contradiction reflects the absence of a full theorization of a prior transition to the Comintern, uh, in the Comintern's leadership's collective thought from all parts of Soviets to all parts of the Communist Party. The first proposition is within the framework of all power to the Soviets, and, the, and in a fairly strong sense, in the, is in the framework of a mass-strike strategy. The second is more like a Kautskin strategy in the most revolutionary reading that can be given in the road to power. Uh, okay. Should I keep going? No, that's enough, I think, there. Somebody was going to say something. Okay. Yeah, I have a question. So, like, oh. this, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, this, like, non-dialectical contradiction here between point A and point B. When I first read this, I, I actually thought of um, the kind of Kotskin conception of like the democratic revolution that will trigger a civil war. Doesn't that solve that contradiction or is there something I'm missing? Not that, well, and that's not an endorsement of that strategy. This is just me thinking about this. Well, no, that's why neo Kautskyists like that, uh, like that thought. They like that scenario because good solves solves that problem. We don't have to confront that Lenin and Kautsky have fundamentally different revolutionary like uh, trajectories. You know, if, if you're taking Kautsky serious as a revolutionary, and most neo Kautskyists, even though McNair is more or less arguing for um, something like the the second, you know, a the road to power kind of strategy, the most revolutionary reading of the road to power, where most Leninists. Like, even if they actually agree with, you know, the, the second reading, they can't conceptualize themselves as not believing in the first thing. They, they understand themselves, even, even if they're fine with, you know, installing Stalinism in, in East Germany, right? They still understand themselves in the tradition of Lenin and in the tradition of an uprising, uh, installing something. Well, we've noticed that most Neokowskiists don't like the term Neokowskiists because really what they are is Leninists who've read right. this book. Yeah, they're Neo-Leninists, essentially, that, that want to go back and kind of hearken back to the democratic legitimacy of, of Kautsky in order to turn it into uh, fodder for Khrushchev. But then I guess my concern too is that like I don't <clears throat> I don't know if I fully and I, I'm no neo Leninist but like I don't know if I fully mm. am on board with um, the Kot, the Kotskin kind of conception of like a democratic revolution and it's you know I get I talk a lot about like you know my skepticism of these things in in American context but I think in in a lot of um, parliamentary democracies it doesn't seem I, I mean I, I can't speak for every country but like I'm I'm just very skeptical of being able to turn, I guess this is kind of going back to the split kind of stuff, like mm -hmm. being able to get support from people who used to be in bourgeois parties or bourgeois labor parties. I don't see that as a viable strategy either, but th th this whole mm -hmm. thing, at least McNair has, has outlined it seems to hinge on that. I'm kind of skeptical of both a and B, not just because mm -hmm. they're contradictory, but because isolated on their own, yeah. they don't seem viable to me. Yeah, and this was a historical appeal of, of Lenin and the the classical left communists, the mass strike Marxists and the syndicalists. They had like, a, you know, it seemed like, historically speaking, they had a better idea, just didn't really play out that way. And so McNair is bringing us back to that point and being like, yeah, we probably should have went with you know, Kautsky's vision of revolution here. Which, yeah, I'm not, <laughs> you know, reading this now, 
neither of these things seem like they're going to lead to what we want. But <laughs> why do you say that, Lexi? Why, why do you say neither? Why couldn't a Kaltskin one in theory work? In theory, I mean, it, it, in theory, in theory, if you had a truly democratic party, if you had, a, if you had a um, a party that or or an organ of some kind that was so prefigurative and so democratic, so much more democratic than the political institutions we're used to or can imagine, then yeah, sure. I mean, it could you know wrest power you know uh, from from the bourgeoisie in a in a parliament, let's say, and then yeah, we could just implement it that way. But the question is all in the ifs there. How do you get that party? that doesn't just lop off all of its, you know, ambitions towards changing the world in exchange for votes. Like how? Yeah, That's I think the question. I think it's a better strategy to and I'm not saying like don't participate in elections at all, but I think it's a better strategy to not focus on that as much. A because you will get shut out of um if you're truly revolutionary, you'll just get shut out of participation in that government even as opposition. It doesn't seem like a viable strategy to me. There is that kind of clause that, as far as I know, is only talked about in this chapter. I don't remember reading about it earlier, where McNair is talking about how, like, if you're shut out of, um, if you're shut out of of the parliament because, you know, some uh, fraud or some bureaucratic, you know, constitutional bullshit, then you have the the mandate, the popular mandate, to smash the state. Um, which does actually solve some of the issues I take with it. Um, but yeah, it, it doesn't solve what Lexi brought up about how how do you get that party in the first place? How does that party not become just uh, another conservative labor labor party? You know, like, you know, there's a lot, lot going on here. And I think focusing more on the prefigurative aspect and less on the electoral aspect is how I kind of solve these issues. Which would be something like the mass pressure on the party, keeping it honest to some degree. So, I mean, that's where your tension comes in and you can't affirm A and B, but if you're not satisfied with A or B, you have to kind of imagine, I don't know, a lot of Marxism is done like, between poles of things we know won't work, right? <laughs> but uh, uh, like, can I give an example? I, I remember being at like uh, Occupy here in London and there was an old geezer there and he was like a part of the Labour Party in the 50s, 60s that were like the left of the Labour Party. They would have been pretty radical, I think. And he was telling me like that they used to have like the General Assembly of the party, I think, used to make policy. And at one stage, like they were going to like he was telling me they were debating on making, I, I think, renting illegal to get rid of the rentier class. And like, I think if you've got a party being hyper-democratic, it allows the militants, not just militant, but just normal people to get radical and push radical reforms. Like, it's no coincidence that Corbyn and McDonnell and these guys are trying to make the party completely democratic again, to like open up its democratic ability to stop the Blairites getting into power ever again. Like, is there a possibility that that, that kind of openness and, and highly democratic. I don't know the ins and outs of the Labour one, so I'm not making a case for exactly what sure. Labour are doing. Will will allow the party not to become, you know, stayed in the wall pseudo-left parties that we have all over the world now. 
Doesn't this assume that we understand that the, what the classes that these parties are supposed to represent actually think, though? Well, it's not necessarily about what they think right now, but it's a, it's about it creating the party, uh, the party being a vehicle for what might be. I guess my concern is that, like, it's hard to say whether or not Corbyn, you know, Corbyn and his supporters can get the Labour Party to be fully democratic again. It's hard to predict what's going to happen in the future, and you probably would be better able to predict than I would. What I can say is that we do know what's happened from the 50s and 60s until now. And what happened was that the Labour Party was compromised. I think we can't underestimate, maybe I don't, I'm not fully dismissing this kind of Kotskin strategy, but I think it would be foolish and naive to assume that these parties can gain mass power and mass support, even as purely oppositional power, and not be compromised. And I think that's what we've seen more often than the Kotskian kind of revolutionary revolution kicking off. As, as far as I know, that's never happened. Whereas there have been, you know, mass strike uprisings that turn into a new regime of some kind. But but they again, also have the problem of, of of degenerating into the power prior forms, basically just yep. people involved. You have to face this either way. You have to face that corrupting force either way. And it's even more striking and stark when you kill a bunch of the ministers and like re, you know, create a whole new, like destroy the previous organization, create a whole new thing, and then fall back on those forms of authority. I have a question for you then, Lexi. I've got like mm. one of these fancy Rolex watches, 250 grand. If I gave you that, like, and would you betray the revolution? Come on now, honest. I mean, it's not, it 250 like grand. Nice, oof, that's a real nice watch. Derek, oh, I, oh, I guess I. Yeah, I mean, Graham, revolution. I, I do why? have a, pr there is a price. There is, there, a price. there is a price. I mean, you know what? Honestly, it is. You kidnap my family. Right. Yeah. I'll probably betray that, and that's such a common tactic. I mean, like the thing is to to stop that. What you have to do is to do the same thing a lot of the times, and it ends up being worse. And so, like, I get why. The, the Marxist Leninists of the world end up justifying the way they justify because if you think this is inevitable, the only way to play the game is to be better at it. Right, which these petty proprietor manager types never are. Right, unfortunately. But but I mean, you know, that's the the problem with the the whole like our elites our elites are not elites. Our elites are like middle management and that's always been kind of been true. But you sort of need them. But at the same poke and like gestalt skill sets is not their issue. And when you look at the Soviet Union, I mean, there were debates in the in the Congress that he's talking about, actually, about how they were going to structure society. And they decided they'd take a teleological single, you know, single unitary centralized structure. And they actually argue about it in that way. They talk about, you know, teleological as opposed to emergent. Which is funny because they're already admitting that they can't do that, right? And some of the other concessions that they've made. But they're going to try to organize this already existing system towards this new this new thing in a singular unified vision. And you can I mean, to this day, you can see it to like the way the Russian heating system works. Like in Russia, even now, you can't individually turn off your heating system. It's 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 organized for teleological centralized efficiency. So like when when the capitalists took over, they didn't just pull all that up. They've been changing it over time, but they didn't, you know, just because they would have to destroy the entire prior infrastructure. Yeah, they have a really interesting system there that's like uh, in the middle of a city, 
they heat up all the water and then they push they like put hot water through the pipes they do that in germany too i saw them do oh, really? that in, in frankfurt they had massive big like basically hot water factory for the entire like district with a big like you know it looks like a it looked like a like a power station and it would pump water hot water around to the different houses and I th- I th- like I think massive buildings i heard that like the like the pipes get damaged and like explode and all sorts of things well, it has a problem that I, I'm, I'm going to sound like a dirty, rotten delusion for a second, which is going to be so funny for people who know me. But it has the problem that Deleuze pointed out about overly centralized systems, that when you break a part of it, the whole thing breaks. But it is yeah. more efficient until that happens. It's uh, efficiency over brittleness. It's like, um, yeah, like, uh, you know, it's really mad. I was in uh, Port- I was in Poland about 20 years ago teaching and was in the middle of nowhere. And... <laughs> Poland's so strange. Like literally every village had its own uh, coal-fired power station. Like literally every village. A village of a thousand people has a big kick-ass coal-powered st- fire station. Uh, <laughs> and so they all have like their, their, their electricity done locally. It's so inefficient. But it's probably really good if there's a nuclear bomb or you're attacked, you know, the German, you know, if it gets invaded by the West. I wonder was that the thinking about it? Anyway. <laughs> Sorry for killing the conversation there. <laughs> Talking about heaters, <laughs> heaters and, and Heating power generation. You've okay, only got okay. a couple of a couple of Marxists talking when you you start talking about centralize the heat. And yeah, now we did toilets <laughs> last week. This week it's power generation and hot water. Next week, next week what? Showers. I think we yeah, we'll have a communal showers and beds. Now, um, okay. Uh, the next paragraph addresses communist participation in coalition governments. This requires, A, guarantees that the workers' government will conduct a real struggle against the bourgeoisie of the kind already outlined, and B, three organisational conditions. One, communist ministers must remain under the strictest control of their party. Two, they should be in extremely close contact with the revolutionary organisations of the masses. And three, the Communist Party has the unconditional right to maintain its own, excuse me, its own identity and complete independence of agitation. This amounts to a government without collective responsibility. But a government without collective responsibility is not a government making mechanism, is not a decision making mechanism for the society as a whole, i.e. it's not a government at all. The thesis tells us that there are dangers in the policy. To identify these, it points out that there are several types of government that can be called a workers' government, but are not a truly proletarian socialist government. In this respect, the thesis continues the line of all power to the Communist Party. The complete dictatorship of the proletariat can only be a genuine workers' government consisting of communists. But communists are also prepared to work alongside those workers who have not yet recognised the necessity of the dictatorship of the proletariat. Accordingly, communists are also ready in certain conditions and with certain guarantees to support a non-communist workers' government. However, the communists will still openly declare to the masses that the workers' government can be neither won nor maintained without a revolutionary struggle against the bourgeoisie. Okay, what do people think about that? Yeah, like, McNair is really harsh on all this stuff. Like, he has a couple nice things to say about this or that thesis, but by the time we're getting here, he's just like, this stuff is virtually without content at all. 
to the degree that there is content, it leaves you in a situation where you, you, you're not defended from arbitrary power. There's no remaining Republican structure here, really. Or, or, you know, there's nothing that guarantees that it's a proletarian, like a, like a worker's government in any sense, except in the sense that the people stick is the, you know, people stick, right? You know, okay, so there's no, there, there may not be a, a singular workers party. Uh, you can, you can, I, you know, you can work with people that are in different parties, uh, but you need a, a communist government. And what does that mean? That the, the communist okay. government isn't the only workers' party. The communist party isn't the only workers' party, but it needs to have control of the government. So, like, you but can kind of like a coalition where it's not in control. Of, it's all gobbledygook, isn't it? Right. So it could be a coalition of uh, workers' parties that don't carry the proletarian torch, right? And that do. That's this is sort of the problem with you know workers' politics, I guess, right? Workers work like actually existing, like, you know, workers, like people, like the sociological body of, of proletarians versus this, like what, versus what it is imagined historically that the proletariat will desire a sort of ideological capital C communist party. I really think there's something too, like a scientific idea of class interests that is, you know, that transcends what individual people want, but this is not how to do that. <laughs> like this doesn't actually get you back there. There was um, like a paragraph or so ago, McNair actually says, yeah, I mean, these, you know, those things about a graduated income tax and this and that, this is the only part of the whole section that has any content. The rest of this is kind of just scrambled. Or am I being too deflationary? You're not being more deflationary than McNair is himself. He is a sassy bitch in this chapter. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but isn't this kind of hard to um? It's kind of hard to have a line on this that's definitive. I think. Well, like I think... sometimes you need to. Let's say you had uh, an absolutist monarchy, and there was a non kind of you know a non-workers organization fighting for a democratic style of government. You know, maybe you not... might want to give them. But that's not what they're talking about in this paragraph. Like they're not talking about the 18th century. They're talking about the 19th, you know, the 20th century. Well, yeah, there were some absolutist monarchies, like in Iran. Okay, for example. That's fair enough. Yeah, that is fair yeah. enough. I think there is a, an important distinction in context here, though. Like while absolutism still existed in the 20th century, what this is it still exists today, too. Sure, but, but regardless of, of it existing or not, what this is talking about specifically is the context of the Soviet Union and the Comintern and how to you know, go from capitalism to communism or socialism. I think what to me was the biggest problem with the, with the even bigger problem than that is so is that they want to have it both ways. And it's not so much a matter of that, like, like Puya's on the right track with like, it's hard to have a definitive line on this because it is so complex. The common term seems to be taking two exactly opposite points of view on how to get rid of the state and then trying to smash them together. And it's not like, you know, a dialectical synthesis or something like that. It's it's just uh, two things that don't mix. They're trying to force it to mix, you know? I think this is why dialectical synthesis talk always has a bad reputation too, because it's so mm. often used to be like, uh, this contradictory thing doesn't really contradict this other contradictory thing that it clearly contradicts. Have a nice day. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't she hand make a joke like that? Um, and when Tom interviewed her, something to the effect of like, you get these like, you know, people in the commentary being like, 
you know, somebody's like voicing a legitimate concern and somebody in the comment is like, no, comrade, it is dialectical. And it's like, no, you just changed thing from a week ago. You can't sell me on this bullshit. Come on. Let's let's move it along. Seeing that McNair is being so sassy and you haven't read any yet, let's go over to Sophie. Would you want to read this minimum platform one first? The certain conditions and certain guarantees must be those stated earlier. But in the context, it becomes apparent that the minimum platform, the most elementary task of a workers' government, is utterly inadequate as a basis for deciding whether communists should participate in a coalition government or remain in opposition. Quote, arm the proletariat, disarm the bourgeois counter-revolutionary organizations, end quote. This is a statement of general principle. How? Disarming the bourgeoisie in the sense of the possession of weapons by individual bourgeois is a task that can only be performed through the exercise of military force. More practically, disarming the bourgeoisie means breaking the loyalty of the existing soldiers to the state regime. This, in reality, is also the key to arming the proletariat. As long as the army of the capitalist state remains politically intact, the proletarians will at best be equipped with civilian small arms, not much of a defense against tanks and helicopter gunships. The Tsar's regime was disarmed by the decay of discipline caused by defeat in the run-up to the February Revolution, and by the effects from February of the Pet Petrograd Soviet's Order No. 1, opening up the army to democratic policy, bringing control over production. This phase is nicely ambi ambiguous. What sort of control? If what is meant is workers' control in the factories, it is utterly illusory to suppose that a government could do more than call for it or, and support it. The workers would have to take control mm -hmm. of it themselves. That, that sort of what sort of control is, um, is kind of what I was getting at. So even if you don't think the mass strike strategy of revolution can work, and if you're, you're a diet-in-the-wool Kalskiist, you still have the problem of who's controlling production again <laughs> there has to be a workers activity and a desire an, an express desire to control production if what is meant for uh, if what is meant is a creation of sufficient planning and rationing to deal with immediate dislocation caused by the bourgeoisie's endeavors to coerce the workers government this implies much more concrete measures, such as the closure of financial markets and nationalization of banks and other financial institutions, seizure into public hands of capitalist productive firms that endeavor to decapitalize or close. Whether or not th this is to lead us to long-term nationalization, the introduction of rationing of essential goods, food, etc., that becomes scarce as a result of capitalist endeavors to withdraw the capital and so on. Shift of the main burden of taxation onto the proprietors. This is a less precise version version of what the of a demand in the communist manifesto for a sharply progressive income tax its vagueness in fact makes it empty a sharply progressive income tax strains the position of working class because they're directly redistributive against the possessing classes and because its existence asserts limits to them on market inequality it is for this reason that the rights in the u.s and britain across europe have begun to fight to cash in its political gains of the last 25 years in the form of flat taxes however all taxes come out of a social surplus product thus at the end of the day the main burden of ta all taxation is at the expense of a proprietor property classes. If taxes on the workers were raised, result is in the long run to force capitalists to pay these taxes in the form of wages. The slogan is empty and is, in fact, diplomatic in character. I didn't like that last paragraph. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's I true. Don't, I don't think that's true. It's not. No, I think that's bullshit. Like, yeah, mm, I think you know, let's read it again. However, all taxes come out of the social surplus product. That's not true. No, because you can have it out of variable capital. Yeah, 
they're like a wor yeah. worker gets their wage right. which has already been exploited and then the tax come out of that so that's not right and thus at the end of the day the main burden of all taxations at the expensive property classes that's incorrect uh, it, well it, it disproportionately affects uh, small proprietors <laughs> Yeah, but that doesn't mean that like p people are working, people still pay taxes. They pay at a higher rate than the goddamn rich people. Yeah. If the taxes on workers are raised, it, the result is in the long run to force capitalists to pay these taxes in the form of wages. What's That's this long run? That's just not true. That's just yeah, it's just gobbledygook. Yeah. I think I think he's kind of coming with this assumption that workers are paid like the amount of labor time necessary to to reproduce them. Like. Like biologically, like or whatever. you mean like a subsistence level? Yeah, yeah, I, well, that's I, not right. You know. Yeah, I think the theory of wages is that you know it's the amount of labor time in the consumption goods that workers get, and you know the level of wages depends on how the economy develops. Instead it's the, of it's the value of labor power. This value and, and labor also, power is determined by class struggle, isn't it? Yeah, and also you know uh, the rate of population growth and the rate of accumulation and variable capital. You know, ultimately, you know, the rate of growth of the economy is a important factor. It also seems to me like this would lead this mistaken thinking could lead people to to oppose socialism <laughs> because um, the, because this makes it sound like petty bourgeois bourgeois taxation policies um, don't don't affect. Yeah, I'm yeah. trying to even get what's being said here because, like, progressive taxation would be benefiting the working class, but saying that no taxation hurts the working class is nutty. I mean, like, consumption taxes is proportionately it. Yeah, this argument is so weak. Like, this argument, shift the main burden of taxation onto the properties classes. That's essentially just saying a progressive, sharply progressive income tax in other words. It's like, and he says this is vague and the other one is not, you know, like, I don't know. It is just, less precise. But let's let's not in the manner of taxation that yeah. that much is true, but it's not you know I don't know most, most of the complaints could uh, be leveled at a progressive income tax as well. Yeah, like basically he's just trying to say like things like this sentence here break the resistance of the counter revolutionary bourgeoisie. They're just wishy washy kind of slogans. There's no content in them, and I think he's trying to make that generally about an awful lot of these different uh, elements of the theses. Much of it is just wordology and, you know, like sound bites with little We don't know content. anything about wordology and sound bites making everybody think they believe something that they don't actually believe, do we? Buy Coke now. Oh, but not Derek's <laughs> Coke. Derek's Coke, Derek's Coke. Yeah. I do worry about this Overton window thinking around socialism for this reason. So Yeah. Sometimes sound bites are, you know, like good for what you, you know, like sometimes you just gotta throw a slogan out there. And, kill your yeah. landlord. Kill, kill, kill your <laughs> landlord. Well, yeah. if, if you... Vote red. <laughs> no, that's a, that's, yeah. a Demi, that's a dead Kennedy song, Derek. You're getting confused. <laughs> it's, it's basically Maoist politics for the last fifty years too. Um, um, there's, just, there's, I don't know, sloganeering. Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny that he calls it a slogan, the workers' government slogan. Because when I first read this, that stung me. I'm like, what do you mean slogan? Isn't this like a theory? Isn't this like a, isn't this like some kind of formulation that's, you know, very important? And when you get into it, no, it's a fucking slogan. It doesn't actually tell you shit. Because like, the theory is mutually contradictory and it all gets out up in a wash of like, do this, but do the opposite thing. <laughs> Right, right. Which I've been complaining about about in socialism for like a hundred years. I mean, I haven't personally been doing it a hundred years. I've only been alive for thirty nine of them. But like, 
Still. Der- Derek's really 147. Um, the- Holy What do you call it? I like when you said there, uh, kill your landlord, kill your landlord. It reminds me of my mate. When I first moved over to England, my mate used to ring me up and he used to say, it was like in around the time of like, you know, kind of terrorism attacks. And he would say like, bomb, bomb, IRA, bomb, bomb, bomb. So, like, <laughs> so that like the, the GCHQ computers would like fucking start recording the conversation. Oh my God. <laughs> Back then when you had to trigger the recording. On this episode, you heard the team tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, and Swampside Chats. <laughs>